Hello and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm Bentley Kaplan, your host for this episode. And while my co-host Mike DeCebedo has gone global and is currently getting his fill of British culture, I'm going to go the other way by giving the show a little more of a local flavor, or at least local for me. Because on today's show, we're going to take a look at the pay package of Neil Froneman, the CEO of Sibanya Stillwater, a mining company listed on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. Sibanya Stillwater operates mostly within South Africa, but also has interests in places like the US and Zimbabwe. And for the 2021 financial year, the CEO, Neil Froneman, earned a pay package of around 300 million rand, which is around $19 million. Now, the question of executive pay on its own is interesting enough to be sure. It's a topic that is gaining more attention from investors and something that was thrust very much into the spotlight during the COVID-19 pandemic. But today, we're playing a little bit of ESG bingo. And in addition to executive pay, we're going to throw in striking unions, economic inequality, and clean energy metals. And like any good ESG story, it's difficult to figure out where one topic ends and another one begins. And without further ado, thank you for sticking around. Let's do this. So let's start with a figure that has kicked off a polarizing debate in some sections of South African media. 300 million rand, which equates to around $19 million. Now, in fairness to the US, where things tend to be a lot bigger and a lot better, a $19 million pay package doesn't raise too many eyebrows. Maybe that's because of a case of eyebrow fatigue, but I don't want to speculate. In a South African company context, $19 million is pretty meaningful. Annual reports are still being published to cover the 2021 year, but for now, Froneman stands comfortably ahead of local CEOs, where generous pay packages tend to fall somewhere between 50 and 100 million rand in a good year. And like most other CEOs who are having a good year, Froneman's pay package is a combination of a cash salary, in this case, roughly 28 million rand, and a much bigger chunk of performance incentives in the form of shareholdings. Opinions of Froneman's pay package have ranged from outrage at its alleged exorbitance to those seeing it as a fair reward for smart business decisions in the face of uncertainty, and all the way to those suggesting that the nature of executive pay is too complex a topic to be shared and therefore debated outside the boardroom. To give us a much-needed context, I bugged one of MSCI's corporate governance gurus, Zanel Mchali, coming to us out of our London office. And the first thing Zanel did was to walk me through the specific pay package and how the company might have taken the decisions that led them to this point. Pay packages in you know, most um, developed markets are designed in very similar ways in that there's a fixed component, uh, which is usually your salary and your pension and you know a few other perks, and that gets paid out no matter what. And then you have performance-related pay, which is you know made up of an annual bonus component and then a long-term incentive component. You know, the annual bonus obviously measured over a year, the long-term component usually measured over around three years with possibly a holding period. Um, and in that sort of three-year period, you have metrics that are used to measure the performance, and it's usually financial performance, usually some sort of measure of return to shareholders, and then another sort of financial component, you know, ROKI or return on invested capital. 
These policies are put together by the board level pay committee, but the, the people who do sort of the heavy lifting on putting these policies together, you'll find a pay consultants or remuneration consultants who get paid to design these packages. And the idea being that, you know, you've got an independent external body that's creating something that's supposed to be fair. You know, what is fair? What is fair in the UK? What is fair in the US? What is fair in South Africa? In this particular case with Mr. Foneman's pay, in a country like South Africa, where you do have you know large amounts of income inequality, is 300 million as an outcome fair? Right. So I don't want to give away too much too soon, but this isn't going to be the kind of story where things are straightforward, or one where we can easily tell you which side to pick. This is a story with nuance. As Anel points out, CEO pay isn't happening in a vacuum. There's market and industry context at play. And even though you'd have a hard time showing a direct connection between Zibanya Stillwater's operations and South Africa's growing inequality, for many, the question of fairness is about trying to reconcile the gap between a CEO's pay package and the average worker. And however you feel about that, and however subjective that argument could be, in Froneman's pay package, we have something objective and quantified. Which is what I asked Zanel about next. Because in the company's public disclosures, you can go and see how calculations were made and which building blocks ultimately stack up to the 300 million rand. And for Froneman and many other CEOs as well, the lion's share of this pay package comes from the vesting of share awards or long-term incentive plans, LTIPs if you're jonesing for an acronym. And a big chunk of those awards are linked to specific financial outcomes. If a company does well, the awards get generous, which on the face of it makes sense. The type of CEO commission system one with potential upsides, clearly, but also one with potential downsides if a company does poorly. And on the face of it, this type of performance-based award makes a lot of sense, right? The whole point of putting in this performance piece in the first place, you know, back in the, well, following the financial crash of, well, 2007-2008, was that, you know, they wanted to to have something that reflected individual, you know, the, the individual's ability to impact their pay, right? So that you weren't seeing bonuses pay out regardless of, you know, the share price tanking. It's clearly not worked, no matter where you look. Whether that's because of the macroeconomic situation, you know, you can also look at that or share buybacks, you know, that sort of thing. You know, we've been in a bull market for at least 10 years now. So as to the CEO's individual performance, if you're in a bull market, your share price is going to stay up, right? Right. And this is the difficulty of a complex system like a company. There are countless internal and external factors that interact with each other to ultimately land on a specific financial outcome, like total shareholder return or return on capital employed. It's very difficult to pull out one or two variables, especially something like the CEO's decision making, and directly link them to outperformance or underperformance. So when pay packages start to bulge, a lot of scrutiny falls on whether the metrics that were suggested by a pay consultant and adopted by a board's pay committee make sense, whether they are reasonable and objective. And yes, Froneman had a good year in 2021, but if we zoom out a little bit further, we can see just what a step up that was from preceding years. In 2020, he took home 62.7 million rand, and in 2019, a much more modest 34.5 million rand. But again, this is not a company operating in a vacuum. I'll be the first to profess my ignorance of the gritty details of the mining industry, but at this distance, it looks difficult and highly pressured. And if you're one of Sibanya Stillwater's investors, 
You might see in Mr. Froneman the type of CEO that is going to help the company's long-term prospects. And if that's the case, then the pay package isn't only about making sure that it's fair or linked to company performance, but also one that won't have him looking around for greener pastures. The competition angle of it and retention angle of it is always a tricky one. You know, shareholders, I think, generally don't want to see people get fired if they're doing well, which he clearly is in this in this case. You know, they don't want to put him in a position where he feels that he should leave because his salary is getting cut. It's a tricky one. I mean, you can see the pay committee in this particular case has, well, has intervened, right? They have made some changes following last year's AGM. Um, so they brought in uh, a few tweaks to the policy, including things like malice and clawback. And one of the other things they brought in was a 20% ESG component, which they applied to the 2021 annual bonus that he got. Um, they they cut 20% off one of the LTIP payments that they paid him because of increased deaths, right? So the deaths increased from 9 to 20, from 2020 to 21. So by having an ESG component that's linked to things like health and safety and other things of ESG performance, they figured, well, they cut that much off his payouts, you know, just to reflect the seriousness of the situation and hopefully try and figure out some ways of presumably reducing it um, for the following year. But he's still walking out with 300 million. Okay, so this is not the first time that executive pay at Sibanya Stillwater has been in the hot seat. Shareholder votes in particular at the company's 2019 and 2021 AGMs both pointed to dissatisfaction with either the company's performance or specific details in the company's remuneration policy. And the pay committee has made some changes after these votes. One of the more interesting ones that Zanel talks about is linking some of the CEO's bonus and long-term incentive plans to specific ESG metrics, in this case worker fatalities. By doing so, the company can either incentivize top-down efforts to improve employee safety in order to preserve that sweet chunk of pay or if there's not the required improvement, to see some of that pay docked, a kind of penalty. And this step might be a good one, especially for a company that has had some history of safety issues. Sibanya Stillwater recorded 24 employee deaths in 2018, 11 in 2017, and 14 in 2016. And we can put this safety risk into context. As of September 2021, Sibanya Stillwater scored a 3.2 out of 10 on our health and safety key issue which is below the average for its metals and mining peers that specialize in precious metals. And this low score is driven in part by gaps in the company's safety management practices and relatively high injury and fatality rates. And as Anel highlights, in 2021, the company missed the ESG target that was included in its remuneration policy and saw 11 more workers lose their lives compared with 2020. But even having missed that target, the CEO is still bagging a sizable pay package for 2021. So maybe, not surprisingly, governance analysts like Sunel and investors alike will be keeping an eye on Sibanya Stillwater's upcoming AGM. And just a heads up, Zanel is going to mention the King Code, which refers to the King Code of Governance Principles, a set of principles and recommended practices that guides corporate governance norms in South Africa, including for listed companies. You know, the AGM for Sibania is coming up next week, so that'll be an interesting one to see what the outcome is, how shareholders feel about it. Uh, and there's you know, two potential scenarios. The one would be that shareholders oppose the pay report by 25% or more, which would be the point at which the company would have to engage with shareholders and then disclose that engagement in its uh, next annual report. And that would be because of the King Code recommendation. And then the other scenario is that you get, you know, around 25% or less opposition, at which point 
you, you get what's called the shareholder rebellion where, you know, there's obviously enough discontent and that people are unhappy, but it doesn't trigger any sort of engagement responsibility from the company. But that would be the sort of thing that makes the news and you know, keeps this story going for another few weeks until the next issue comes up. As Anel puts it, Sibania may have to navigate some difficult press articles over its pay policy until the next issue comes up. Well, as it happens, the next issue is ongoing, and is one that is going to give the story its full context. To do that, we should look a little more closely at Sibanya Stillwater itself. The company started off not so long ago, in 2013, when the South African company Goldfields unbundled its GFI mining subsidiary. Sibanya would go on to grow its gold division, but then also branch out into Platinum Group Metals, or PGMs, three years later, and by 2021, into Lithium as well. Now at the time of recording, Sibanya Stillwater is in tense negotiations with mine workers in its gold mining division, as part of a 10-week strike. Key unions representing Sibanya's employees are the National Union of Mine Workers, or NUM, and the Association and Mine Workers and Construction Union, or AMCU. These two unions jointly represent around 25,000 employees working in the company's gold operations. That's around 80% of its mine workers that are chasing after gold, and more than one quarter of Sibanya's total workforce. Now, for those unfamiliar with the complex history of unions and mining companies in South Africa, Unfortunately, this show isn't long enough to get into all of it. Suffice it to say, it has not always been a peaceful history. Strikes have been violent and have included conflicts between different unions. Perhaps the most infamous strike in recent years was in Marikana, in South Africa's northwest province. In August 2012, a strike by mine workers at the Lonman Platinum Mine culminated in violent police intervention and the deaths of 34 miners. Seven years later, after facing an uncertain future, Lonman was acquired, and the company that acquired it was Sibanya Stillwater. Now, as I'm recording this, our ESG rating of Sibanya Stillwater sits at a double B, which is a couple of rungs up from the worst possible of triple C, but a fair way off from the best possible rating of triple A. In our rating of metals and mining companies that specialize in precious metals, we split the emphasis equally across our environmental, social, and governance pillars. On its governance pillar, Sibanya Stillwater actually does pretty well, compared with its global peers, which is not that unusual for South African companies. In its environmental and social pillars though, the company falls short of the industry averages, particularly through low scores in the water stress, health and safety, and labor management key issues. Now we touched on health and safety already, but to get a better handle on the company's labor risks, particularly in a South African context, I brought in Sam Block, our mining industry lead, coming fresh out of MSCI's New York office. Mines in South Africa are some of the most labor-intensive mining operations around the, around the world in terms of like industrialized mining operations. A lot of these gold mines in particular were opened and designed back in apartheid South Africa, which in a lot of ways, you know, they were exploiting the labor of, of black Africans. And those mines, you know, times have changed, but those mines continue to be uh, dependent on, on being, you know, very labor intensive. 
depending on your perspective, labor-intensive operations are more likely to face layoffs. If there's a slowdown, um, they can shut the operations more quickly by laying people off, as opposed to more capitalized, you know, more automated operations. They kind of have to keep working. They, they can't fire you know, the equipment that they're paying off and appreciating over time or, or leasing. So there's actually is more likelihood that there is going to be layoffs uh, and then rehiring, you know, maybe the next year or a couple of months later because of that flexibility that they have with a more labor intensive operation. But then, of course, these companies are going to come and, and, and face unions that are going to obviously oppose the, the layoffs of their workers. And so, you know, you have a lot of uh, contentious labor relations in South Africa. Right. So given what Sam is saying, it's maybe no surprise that in our ESG ratings model, we assess mining companies on the labor management key issue. Because motivating a large workforce and staying on the right side of unions is a key operational consideration. And mine workers are not only operating in uncomfortable and dangerous positions, but in companies where job uncertainty is a real concern, tied to phrases like rationalizing and right-sizing. So it's probably not all that surprising to see that the pay package of Sibanya Stillwater's CEO has been a bit of an accelerant in the back and forths between union leaders and the company. Per the company's 2021 disclosures, the average salary for its entry-level employees in South Africa was 21,070 Rand per month, which is around $1,300. And that's roughly one and a half times bigger than South Africa's minimum wage. But unions and workers are not only looking at minimum wage as a barometer, they're looking at Sabanya's management. And there are all kinds of caveats around benefits and allowances or site-specific profit-sharing schemes. But if we extrapolate that basic salary into an annual salary, Froneman took home roughly 1,100 times that number, which is what workers are really agitating about. In their current strike, unions are asking for an increase of 1,000 Rand per month for three years. Now that equates to a 9.8% rise in year one, an 8.8% rise in year two, and an 8.2% rise in year three. So Banya's best current offer is short of that, at 850 Rand per month for the same period, which still equates to a 7.8% increase in the first year, 7.2% in the second, and 6.8% in the third. Both proposals would be above the inflation target of South Africa's central bank, which is between 3 and 6%. But this is why I also wanted to raise an argument that's been made in defense of Froneman's pay. And I'm simplifying here. But it goes somewhere along the lines of the CEO made the right decisions under a lot of uncertainty and skepticism. In particular, he drove decisions to diversify into new minerals, which was a key driver of growth and should bode well for long-term resilience. And yes, those decisions helped the company perform well, and that translates into generous incentive payments. But a company that stays in business or moves with market trends, like tapping into sudden rising demand for clean tech metals, is also one that can provide continued employment for its workforce, wherever union negotiations ultimately land up. And Sam had some helpful insight into how the company's efforts to diversify might ultimately play out. Gold and, and platinum, and you know, a lot of the uses and demand for these materials are for jewelry. And in gold in particular, investments and jewelry account for over half of gold demand. Industrial uses are much lower. And, and so from a sustainability perspective, you could argue that um, using platinum or, you know, platinum metals have more applications for clean tech. 
a lot of platinum is used now in catalytic converters. And with actually the transition to electric vehicles, you'll have less of demand for these catalytic converters. That being said, however, platinum is likely to be heavily in demand for fuel cell vehicles. And so there are some potentially long-term benefits there. For investors that are searching for, you know, suppliers of clean tech, that's going to attract platinum mining and diversified into to other metals like nickel or lithium or copper could attract investors into those companies rather than a pure play gold mining company. And being diversified in general is going to, you know, lower the risks if in case there's a market slowdown and for one metal as opposed to another one. It may lead to that company being able to withstand, you know, slowdowns in a more sustainable way and therefore may lessen the amount of layoffs they have, for instance. Right, so Sabanya Stillwater may be knuckling down for a prolonged union negotiation. But as Sam puts it, the company has moved into metals that not only offer a way of diversifying risk, but also potentially capitalizing on growing demand. Demand for lithium in new battery technologies or platinum group metals for fuel cells. And implementing the strategic vision while navigating today's operational challenges kind of comes with the job of CEO. A job that carries a lot of pressure, to be sure, but one that increasingly comes with weightier and weightier pay packets. And this trend is being barnstormed by US companies and replicated in other markets. The Economic Policy Institute reported that CEO pay at 350 large US companies was 351 times larger than that of a company's average pay in 2020. And that was a steep step up from the more modest 307 to 1 ratio of 2019, or the 61 to 1 of 1989. You get the idea. And this upward trend does create a tricky situation for pay committees. We may never have a satisfactory answer to the question of how much is too much for a CEO, or not enough. Because a company can hire an independent consultant and elect an independent pay committee that signs off on a number that may seem reasonable in the boardroom but finds a much cooler reception in the court of public opinion or in the dangerous, punishing conditions of a mine. And on the flip side, there may also be no amount of post-hoc rationales that will convince skeptical shareholders or union bosses of the links between management decisions and stellar company performance. And even though there does appear to be some shifting, more pressure from some shareholders, including asset owners, to rein in CEO pay, and more pressure from stakeholders, ultimately this is a big ship that needs turning around and it may be some time yet before we see more measurable changes. And that is it for the week. A massive thanks to both Sunil and Sam for their take on the news with an ESG twist. What I've cut into today's show was taken from much longer interviews, and it broke my heart a little to have to leave so much behind. But we know our listeners like to keep things short and sweet. And on that note... Thank you very much for spending your precious time listening to our show. Smack down some stars and reviews if the urge takes you, and please do send us any feedback or ideas for future shows. The Fearless Mike will be back again with you next week. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc. subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research, LLC, a registered investment advisor, and the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to, nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording 
is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.